Only God makes actual individuals. Uh, the world manufactures plenty of group thinkers, plenty of crowd followers, but the person who can think and act independently is a very rare sort of person. That person is probably quite godly, quite free, and quite fruitful. good you are good when there's nothing good in me you are love you are love on display for all to see you are light you are light when the darkness closes in you are hope you are hope you have covered all my sins peace you are peace when my fear is crippling you are true you are true even in my wandering you are joy you are joy you're the reason that I sing you are life you are life and you death has lost its Sing, no 
darkness starts to vanish every hopeless situation simply ceases to exist when you walk into the room the dead begin to rise because there is
Welcome to our service this week. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we're thankful for our artists that create such beauty that connects us with you. And as I look at that painting this morning and reflect on the scripture, with him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And as I look at the, the cords that are plugging in, it reminded me of how grateful I am for the internet. Like we can't see all the behind the scenes infrastructure of that, but it's just blessing us. God, we thank you for it. We, we thank you for being able to do things virtually in this time. And we pray for uh, uncommon ability to be soft and pliable and to go with uh, what we're in right now and to find you in it and to know that you are at our right hand no matter what we're facing. We thank you for always being there. We pray for a revelation of your truth this morning, that you'd open our hearts and deposit in what we need for this week. And we bless each one watching. We bless you with the presence of God wherever you are. In Christ's name, amen. I'm Kyle Govea, originally from Hawaii, born and raised. Deciding to get the tattoo took roughly only a couple of weeks. The reason that I, I, I think I go towards tattooing when I lose people close to me or people that I love is, is I've always felt like it kicks off my grief acceptance. I have three tattoos. The first tattoo I ever got was the initials my, of my parents' um, wedding invitation after my dad had passed away. I added to it with my lele wrapping around the arm, which is the circle of life in Hawaiian culture. Then I have my third tattoo is uh, Grayson's portrait on my left shoulder. Grayson is um, our son who we lost uh, after a 10-month battle with brain cancer uh, on January 22nd of 2016 at 12.45. He went back to, uh, to be with God. We were super close. We bonded uh, more than I ever imagined we would. I was a soccer coach. I, I was into all the things that he was into. And that is something that I never wanted to give up. The biggest thing for us was that Grayson was never scared. And um, that was one of my biggest fears, is that I didn't want him to be scared. And we know he had been in communication with God prior to leaving because the wisdom this five-year-old was dropping on us the last two weeks blew us away, you know. He was in pain, he couldn't sit up right because he had kidney stones and just all these complications from his treatments. And Gabby's apologizing to him and, and, she tell, and he looks up at her and says, Mommy, we, don't, we can't always affect the things we have to go through. And we're just like, what? And his literally last words as he's passing away, he all of a sudden just looks at her. She's laying in the bed with him and says, Mommy, I love you. Don't worry. I'm okay. And then he passes away a couple hours later. So you're like, 
if God's not guiding that, then well, well, how's that possible, you know? So it was just that final affirmation that we knew he was in charge and he was guiding the whole thing. We knew that he was gonna die, he was gonna pass. And Gabby was able to at some point accept and give it up to God and, and I was stubborn and I was praying to God till the last breath that he was gonna cure him. And so my acceptance was a little later. Getting the tattoo and enduring that pain for four hours was symbolic of me just saying, all right, I'm in. I'm laying that grief at God's feet and be like, okay, through this pain, through this sacrifice, I'm giving it up to you. My new life is, is what you have deemed it to be, so. I understood and accepted the fact that Grayson was sent here for a specific purpose. He accomplished his mission, his purpose, and Grayson had to come home, you know? And that was his job, and how it was to change Gabby and I's lives to fulfill our purpose in, in this world, on this planet, and to support others going through similar battles. And, and it just, our lives have taken a whole different shape. Our purpose and mission with the nonprofit is to support other families that have suffered the loss of a child as they take on their new normal of having living with grief for the rest of their life. So my relationship with God as a result of losing Grayson has only gotten stronger. Grayson kind of pushed us towards it, you know, pushed us closer to God. He has not left us, and I, I don't think our loved ones do, you know. Thank you, Ka'eo, for your story. Grayson and your Ohana story stays with us and is shaping and coloring our community with faith and grace. As many of you know, Blue Water sets aside 25% of our contributions to go directly to organizations that work with those that have particular challenges. Let Grace In is one of those organizations and Blue Water is honored to support this good work. During a creative session, it occurred to us that the reason people get tattoos is to tell a story. And some tattoos remain a conversation between the individual and God. It's a little more personal but some are meant to be a conversation with others, more of an evangelistic piece, but all have meaning. And we all carry our stories with us in some way. Are you carrying yours via a tattoo? You may have a tattoo testimony. Uh, email a picture of your tattoo and your testimony to antonio at bluewatermission.org. I'd love to hear it. All right, let's continue our worship with our offering. You can give in two ways, online at our website or via post. Just send your checks to our office. If you're new or visiting, please feel no obligation to give. All right, kids, stand up. Let's pray for you. Oh, Father, you are our creator. You are giving us a story that's unfolding before our eyes, and we know that it ends very good. Uh, and we bless you kids with that story, with the goodness of God, uh, with his word, and with his fellowship. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever had 
one of those situations where the whole crowd zigged, but you felt like you had to zag, where you were alone in front of a crowd due to what you believed or how you behaved, something like that. It's a good mental exercise for Christians to do sometime. Imagine that you were in front of a crowd that opposed you for some reason. What's one thing that you as a Christian might say to win over a crowd? And ultimately, what's one true thing that you as a Christian might need to say, even though it could anger a crowd? Once people are determined to be mad and against you, it's kind of like you and your own human power can't convince them otherwise. So I feel like if I were in this situation, I would need a miracle at that point and God to really speak through me. So hopefully he'd give me something in the moment, um, maybe something along the lines of, you know, about Jesus's character or like the fact that he's the one who, who saves. Saying to your accuser, like you are worthy of being loved. You are worthy of being seen. You have value, like yeah. so, something to that extent to just like acknowledge and recognize that humanity yeah. in the midst of their cruelty i think he still loves you and yeah that's my that's what i really take away of, a, of god it's like willing to like lay down his life and be a servant and strip his power down to come close to people and love them where they're at um i remember uh an iconic moment that I had, uh, not in grad school, but in, not in high school, but in grad school, uh, where I was in uh, a debate workshop on public policy. You know, universities are supposed to be put places for free and independent thought and exchange. And, and I was with a bunch of other PhD students and professors, and we were talking about uh, national policy. The conversation had turned to a conversation about abortion policy and the women's right to choose. and and stuff like that. This was during the Clinton administration and the Clinton administration had just recommended that the age of consent be lowered, that teenagers be allowed to get abortions without bothering to inform their parents and stuff like that. Free abortion on demand for children as young as 14 was the policy on the table. And it was assumed in the room that everybody would agree that this was a good thing. And so I, I spoke up at a certain point and said, well, dude, I don't agree with that. And everybody kind of looked at me and the conversation stopped uh, for a minute. That wasn't the interesting point, actually, because I was used to saying things that made me stand out um, from time to time. What was interesting is that the group refused to continue to debate about it. They just said, that surprises us, Jordan. And then they shut down the discussion. Uh, so much for free and independent thought. I had another experience in grad school when I published my first uh, article in an academic journal. It was a rather reputable academic journal. And, and uh, the, uh, the article was already in galleys, which means that it was already uh, printed up and you know, it was prepared to, to be sent out. And one afternoon, I got a call from the editor of the journal. It was this prominent figure in Washington, DC. And he called me up uh, and said, Jordan, is that you? Hey, Ben, how's it going? He said, is it true? Is what true, Ben? Are you one of them? He had heard the rumor in Washington, D.C. that I was a Christian. And it was so rare in higher academia to have a Christian scholar 
that he was aghast that he had to call me in the middle of his day to confirm the rumors that I was actually a Christian in my belief and my behavior. Uh, unfortunately, I had to inform him that I was, and he very generously published the article anyway. Uh, it was on nuclear arms control, for whatever that's worth. Evidently, Christian opinions are okay in, in that realm. In moments like that, uh, you know, they, they make fun stories. Uh, Nothing was really at risk for me in those moments except my career and my reputation. Those are really kind of small things in the balance uh, of the world. Uh, occasionally, of course, standing out for what you believe, um, standing out on the basis of what you say or how you behave, uh, can bring greater risks uh, to individuals. And the Apostle Paul was used to those sorts of risks. We read about them all the time in scripture. The dude was often treated very roughly in the course of his ministry. We are in the middle of uh, a sermon series on the book of Acts, and we're getting to the end of the book now. Uh, and beginning in chapter one, there's a long series of stories that are about uh, Paul's various court trials and imprisonments. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is to go through several chapters that uh, contain accounts of Paul's trials and imprisonments. What has happened here is that Paul uh, has finished his uh, third missionary journey and he has made his way back to Jerusalem, which is still sort of the headquarters uh, of the church. He's gone to Jerusalem despite receiving prophecies that in Jerusalem he would end up in chains. So he kind of knows that he's going to be imprisoned not a big deal for him because he's been thrown in prison several times already in the course of his ministry. Uh, but this ends up being a rather epic and sort of final for him. So let's skim through the tale. Uh, what I'm going to do is read an excerpt uh, from chapter 21 uh, to start us off, to kind of set it up. And then I'll just talk through the other chapters, reading a verse here and there. And everybody can kind of follow along. This is the story uh, leads us to kind of Paul's final imprisonment. Picking it up, Acts chapter 21. We're going to read verses 17 through 40 to start. Um, Luke is with Paul. Luke is writing this account. And so uh, he writes in the plural first person. He says, we. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. James is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, and he's sort of the nominal leader of the church in Jerusalem at this point. So the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed here in Jerusalem. And all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles, all the Jews who live outside of Israel, to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. In truth, Paul had never told Jews not to live according to the law, although he had told Gentiles that they didn't have to follow the Jewish customs. So this is not really true but all the Jews in Jerusalem have heard that Paul has been preaching against the law. What shall we do? They say to Paul. They will certainly hear that you have come 
So, do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can sh have their heads shaved. So, what the deal is here is that when you wanted to purify yourself from some sort of contamination, um, you would uh, do a temple ritual in Jerusalem. You would uh, go to the temple, you would do this sort of ritual cleansing for seven days, you would shave your head, and the priests would declare you ceremonial clean, and you would typically give a little offering. So what these guys are saying to Paul is, look, you've been out among the dirty Gentiles, you probably want to purify yourself, let's do the crowd one better, purify yourself, but also pay for the purification rites of all of these other guys uh, who are going through the same thing. Then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idol, from blood and the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. In other words, we don't expect the Gentiles to follow the law, but let's signal to the crowds in Jerusalem that you are a good Jew. So what the leaders of the Jerusalem church are saying to Paul is essentially, hey, Paul, how about you virtue signal a little bit? How about you make a gesture to the Jewish crowd so that they realize you're not a traitor to the Jews and then everything will, will go smoother. It's kind of the recommendation. Paul takes the advice. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. This would have been through a temple ritual. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul goes along with his plan. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Remember, Paul has recently been in Asia and he stirred up a lot of uh, trouble there. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. He hadn't. All of these charges are technically not true, but they rile up the crowd. The whole city was aroused. Man, the entire city. Massive protests. And the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, things have gotten serious fast, News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Remember that Rome was occupying Jerusalem at the time. So this Roman officer, he at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. 
The crowd that followed him kept shouting, away with him, away with him, kill him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Has no idea who Paul is. Paul answered, uh, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Uh, what he's telling the commander is that he's in fact a Roman citizen. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, he speaks to them in their own local language, and we'll just stop there uh, for a few minutes and just summarize everything that happens next. But just appreciate the scene. Uh, Paul is welcomed, essentially, in the Jerusalem church uh, by some. But not everyone is going to welcome Paul because he is a controversial figure because he has taken the gospel to the Gentiles. He has taken them, the gospel beyond the Jews, and some Jews don't like that very much. And some Jews feel like he's betraying their people and teaching Jews around the world to be less than Jewish. Of course, none of that is actually true. So he's told to, you know, virtue signal a little bit, to make a political gesture to the crowds, to go through this ritual that he himself probably thought was unnecessary, but ah, what the heck. He takes the advice. It doesn't work at all. Like he's in the middle of, of doing this ritual, of doing this signaling, and the crowd just turns on him in a huge way. In a matter of a few minutes, he's being beaten, and the crowd is trying to kill him. Everybody's shouting different accusations, none of which are actually true. Everyone thinks they know who Paul is. Everyone thinks they know what Paul is about and who he stands for. But in the course of this story, not a single person says something true about Paul. The Roman soldier ends up thinking that he's an Egyptian terrorist of all things. Nobody knows really who Paul is. Um, everyone tries to type him. Everyone tries to categorize him, to slot him in a place, which is what crowds always do, right? Crowds are not particular in, particularly insightful in the way that they think. And in the midst of that, Paul speaks up. In the next chapter in Acts 22, uh, what he does before the crowd is he essentially tells his testimony. He says, I used to persecute Christians, and then I encountered Jesus in a vision, and that changed everything for me. And then he gets to the point in the story uh, in Acts 22 where uh, he says to the crowd, and then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you away to the Gentiles. And that's all the crowd can stand to hear. At that point, the crowd just erupts. It becomes so out of control, uh, so angry that the Roman commander just has to whisk Paul into the military barracks and puts him under protective custody. He is thrown in prison for his own safety, in other words. He's taken away to jail. It occurs to me in that moment when Paul got a chance to speak to the crowd, he could have made peace with them. It would have been very logical for Paul in that moment to say, hey guys, let me explain to you that the things you're saying about me are not true. It would have been a very logical place for him to defend himself. Instead, he tells the Jesus story. He doesn't worry about 
making peace. Instead, he makes truth. He takes the occasion to share Jesus. His goals are unique. He doesn't fear the crowd, even though it's trying to kill him. Instead, he tries to save the crowd, or at least save some people in the crowd. Well, the next day, Paul is dragged before the Sanhedrin. He's dragged before the Jewish Congress, in other words. The account says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this point, the high priest, the leader of the people, a guy named Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him in the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So Paul gets a little angry. He's trying to testify in a congressional courtroom, and the leader, Ananias, orders him to be punched in the mouth, which violates the law, of course, that kind of violence. And Paul says, hey, that's against the law. Don't do that. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? That's the high priest who ordered you to be punched. Paul replied, Oh, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. This strikes me as very gracious of Paul. I mean, true, the high priest is the leader of the people, but the high priest has just ordered that Paul get abused. You know, it seemed like Paul had a case, but Paul instead chooses to follow scripture that says, always be respectful of the leader of your people, parenthetically, even that, if that leader is not acting uh, as a leader should. So gracious, yeah? And indeed, I know that none of us at Blue Water ever say anything evil about the leader of our people, right? We would never do that. We would never be critical of the leader of our people. We would always respect him as a person, even if he does things that we don't agree with, right? And we would always pray for him consistently as good Christians do, right? Yeah, because we, like Paul, um, are devoted to scripture. <clears throat> Enough about that. <clears throat> then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, that's kind of like saying, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Republicans and some of them were Democrats, because the Sadducees and Pharisees were separate religious political parties and they had different beliefs, knowing that they were two different Paul, uh, parties, Paul called out to the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial today because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And this was a poignant political moment for Paul. Technically, is he on trial because he believes in resurrection of the dead? Well, I mean, kind of, because he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees did not believe in Christ, but they did believe in resurrection, which is something the Sadducees did not believe in. So what Paul is doing here is he's creating tumult between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, and a great uh, uproar begins in, in the Sanhedrin. In speaking before the Sanhedrin, Paul had a chance to defend himself. Instead, what he does is that he foments a crisis. He talks about resurrection because it could at least open some of their minds to the realities of Christ. 
he's still testifying about Jesus instead of trying to defend himself. But it gets up so uproarious in Congress uh, that uh, it, you know, it's costly to himself. What happens is that he has to be taken from there back into protective custody for his own protection. Then there's a plot by the Sadducees to kill him. Paul is tipped off to the plot. The Romans end up taking him out of Jerusalem to Caesarea, where he is put on trial again in front of the Roman governor, a guy named Felix. So he continues in prison, and he goes from courtroom to courtroom to courtroom. In the midst of this, in chapter 23, we read, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Is that good news or bad news? Because the way Paul testifies about Jesus in Jerusalem is in chains. You know, Paul is a prisoner in Jerusalem. People try to kill him two or three different times in Jerusalem. And it's kind of like the Lord saying, hey, you know, you'll be a prisoner in Rome, but you'll get to do the same thing there, buddy. What good news. Um, anyway, Paul, I think, takes it as encouragement. He files it away. And then there's this trial before the Roman governor Felix. The Jews, again, come to the trial, the Jewish leaders from the Sanhedrin, and they try to paint Christianity as a troublesome sect and Paul as a leading troublemaker in the Christian sect. Rome hated troublemakers, so they're trying to get Paul killed. Felix, the Roman governor, delays his decision about what to do with Paul uh, until he had a chance to interview Paul privately. It turns out, we are told in the account, that Felix had heard about the way. He had heard about Christianity. And Felix was married to a Jewish woman. So he finds Paul intriguing. We read in the account of Paul's uh, interview with Felix, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix got scared. <laughs> and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. In other words, standing before Felix, getting a private audience, Paul could have tried to talk him his way out of chains. Felix knew about the way. He knew it was not a troublesome sect. But instead, Paul preaches at Felix about the need for repentance and self-control and tells him that he would be judged by God in the end. In other words, he provokes Felix and scares him, which is not necessarily a smart thing to do to someone who could execute you by raising a finger. Again, Paul is not scared about the crowd. He's not scared about the situation. He's just doing his thing. He's just telling the truth. And then when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, a different Roman governor, a different administration. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, we read, he left Paul in prison. So Paul has been unjustly imprisoned for long about three years at this point. His life in threat frequently. He could have tried to talk his way out of trouble. He could have tried to talk his way out of the injustice. Uh, instead, he tries to save the governor. He preaches to the Roman officials facing death and rot, Paul dominated his situation instead of letting his situation dominate him. And that's kind of classic Paul. That's what we've come to expect from the guy. 
Then he has yet another trial in front of a new Roman governor, this time in front of Governor Festus. Uh, TJ, Antonio, and Johanna are expecting a baby, and I would just like to formally suggest Festus <laughs> as a baby name. Huh? Kind of like festival. Kind of like festival, but cooler. Yeah. I Okay, so he says yes. He says yes to Festus. Uh, take note, Johanna. Uh, and in that uh, trial with the new governor, the Jews plot to kill Paul, but again are thwarted. Uh, Festus uh, holds a trial for Paul, including the Jews. The Jews want to be transferred back to Jerusalem because there he would be more vulnerable to assassination. And Paul uses a different strategy. Instead of going back to Jerusalem, he appeals to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. I've been in court long enough. Now I appeal to Caesar's court. Send me to Rome so that I can be judged in the Supreme Court, is basically what he says. He's been in, in prison unjustly for almost three years, so an appeal is in order. Um, Festus uh, says yes, but to complete his examination of Paul, he invites King Agrippa, who is a puppet Jewish king, to come interview Paul as well in order to get the full story because Paul is an intriguing figure. So King Agrippa, this Jewish puppet king, come and they have a trial together, at which point Paul shares his testimony yet again. At a certain point, Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? It's clear that Paul is trying to convert everybody around him, even the people who hold his life in their hands. And Paul replies in what is one of the great lines of the New Testament. <clears throat> Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for the chains. Instead of trying to talk his way out of trouble, Paul tries to save the traitorous king. The Fuhrer dies down a little bit, and Agrippa eventually says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul has sort of cleverly earned his way to Rome in chains. Otherwise, he could have been freed there in Caesarea. And uh, that's kind of where these series of court accounts end in the book of Acts. We know that Paul uh, would be sent to Rome shortly. We'll pick up that story in next week's sermon. History tells us that Paul would ultimately be executed in Rome. Um, he wouldn't get out of prison. Uh, he would be uh, beheaded in the persecution against Christians conducted by Nero, who was an insane Roman king. Um, killed for no other reason than he was a Christian. I love reading this series of accounts of Paul standing trial before various people because it shows a man who is completely committed to his own code, you know, uh, which is the only way to be an individual, to be committed to your own code of belief and behavior. And since Paul's code is a godly code submitted to God and mission-oriented and unselfish, it brings freedom to Paul um, as a person, even though physically he's standing in chains in prison on trial in a court for life or death. There are worldly codes of conduct that, that you could have uh, to which some people are committed 
But since worldly codes of conduct always involve sinful behaviors, the person who abides by them becomes enslaved to, to bad behavior, and things always fall apart for people like that. But Paul's code, although it leads him into trouble of a sort, um, one gets the impression that, that it also brings him a degree of self-possession. It's like in the midst of all of this tumult, all of this uproar with mobs trying to kill him and Roman governors uh, examining him and betraying him and using him as a political set piece and all of this stuff, somehow he always looks like the guy who's in control because he's always being true to himself and to his calling. Um, while he is in chains, he is certainly not enslaved. You know what I mean by that? He just looks so amazingly free precisely because his environment is beyond his control. Does that make sense? His freedom is somehow shown more starkly in that situation. This is a guy who is completely free in himself, impervious to the opinions of other people, impervious to the pressures and intimidations of his situations. He is the eye of every storm. You know, it's like he's saying, yeah, you know, sure, the, the mob might kill me, uh, the courts might misjudge me, I might rot and die in prison, yeah, whatever, whatever. Uh, the truth is the truth, and I'm going to tell the Jesus story, and I'm going to preach and serve as I can for as long as I can. That seems to be his attitude, and he's totally free within that attitude. I don't think any prisoner has ever been quite so free as Paul the Apostle. And it's just a really unique record from 2,000 years ago in history. And I'm thinking today that maybe uh, some of you are feeling shackled by forces beyond your control. Anybody? Anybody notice any large forces beyond our control in the world today? And maybe that's making some of us feel kind of shackled. You know what I mean? Feeling kind of hemmed in. There are powerful social and economic and political forces sweeping across our country these days, profoundly reshaping lives, profoundly reshaping futures. And a lot of that seems beyond our control. It's easy to feel powerless right now, isn't it? It's easy. But you know, I, I don't know, in some ways it's often easy to feel powerless in life. Like, people won't listen to me. Or, you know, like, like you don't get a fair shake in life. Or, like, God, for some reason, is content letting you be stuck in whatever prison that you're in. Anybody ever feel like that? just don't have a lot of options in this situation. Um, and all those things can erode a person's sense of, well, control, but also erode a person's sense of personhood, of, of individuality. You can forget the power of your own Jesus story. Uh, you can forget the power of your purpose. You can start to let the world direct your agenda instead of manifesting the agenda that God has put within you. You can start looking for salvation in the crowd instead of bringing salvation to the crowd. 
You know what I'm saying? When you feel out of control, that can happen to you. So let's end today with a pro tip. A pro tip for Christians in wild times. Here's my tip. Treat yourself as someone whom God is trying to develop as an individual right now. And a good way to do that is to ask, ask God, how do you want me to stand out right now? This is, this is just sort of a tip. This is just sort of advice. It's not a legal rule or anything. But I would suggest that if you're feeling a little victimized by forces beyond your control, say to God, God, how do you want me to stand out right now? Because there's something about standing out that I think provokes what's individual in you, that provokes your own personhood, that requires you to kind of sift through who you are. And anybody who can be an individual in a troubling time becomes a powerful, free person. Always. That's how it works. It's always important to stand up for something in this world, but occasionally in the world, it's important to stand out for something, right? It's not just what you believe in, it's your ability to stand apart for what you believe in. Sometimes standing out from a crowd takes even more faith than simply standing up for a principle. Are you following? Gotcha. Um, I don't want you to stand out by, you know, like your fashion sense or your lack thereof, you know. Stand out for some other godly reason and consult with God about that. God, right now, in this crazy world, in what way do you want me to stand out as an individual? I predict that will be a fruitful conversation between you and the Lord. The ability to stand on your own two feet with, as we're told, the Lord coming to stand near, as he did with Paul. Individuals always stand out, not always in a welcome way, but that's fine. Uh, if you are a true person who speaks the truth and acts truly, you will always have an unusually high number of people who love you and an unusually high number of people who are offended by you. You will get both. So be it. Ask yourself, how does God want you to stand out right now? Pro tip to you in crazy times. Father God, I pray that you would make all of us into actual individuals, complete persons, who follow the code that you have given us. No matter the forces, a swirl in the world, no matter what the crowd around us is demanding, no matter what the situation is threatening, no matter what our social fears, our economic fears, our health fears, our existential fears, let us be true to who you made us to be and the purpose that you have given us in the world. We say, Lord, with as much faith as we can muster, that we are willing to stand apart for you, that we are willing to simply be humble and to tell honest stories, Jesus stories, that you have made plentiful in our lives. 
Make us testifiers, Lord. And we pray that by our efforts, we would be whole and many would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Blue Water family. Thanks again for joining us today for our Sunday service. I hope that you felt encouraged. If you've got a prayer request, maybe you would like some prayer for something Jordan spoke about, maybe for confidence to stand up as a true individual in this world or something else in your family or work situation, we would love to help pray with you. You can email julie at bluewatermission.org with your name and your phone number and someone from our prayer team would be happy to call you back and pray with you today. We love you guys. We are still praying for you. We know that the Lord is at work in each of our lives in really unique and powerful ways. So I encourage you this week to trust that God sees you. He sees you as an individual and he wants to be powerful through your life this week. All right, take care and we'll see you soon.